Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. When you set a goal, you want to ask a few why questions. So I need to take this class, why? Or if I pass this class, I can take the next class, why? I want to get this college major, why? I want to get into some profession. I want to understand some problem. Ask these questions. Go more abstractly, understand the, the reason uh, behind what you are doing. Then at one point, the, the why becomes too abstract. Okay? And if you just ask this question enough times, eventually it becomes just like, I want to be happy. Mm-hmm. At that point, I say, well, you know, but we all want to be happy. And if you think about how to be happy, so now let's go one level below, start asking how, well, that is not necessarily going to get you to take this class. How to be happy, that's not by uh, studying computer science. And so if the why becomes so absent that it's no longer connects to how, or if you don't get back to where you started when you asked the how questions, Okay, then, uh, then you became too, uh, too upset. It is no uh, longer useful. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Violet, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here today. It is my pleasure to have you here. Uh, as uh, I had mentioned to you, I wanted you to be one of our first episodes of 2023 uh, because I thought it was such a fitting message. You have a book out called Get It Done, Surprise, Surprising Science of Motivation, which I absolutely loved because it was so practical and realistic instead of just a bunch of inspirational nonsense. Uh, but before we get into that, I wanted to start by asking you, where in the world were you born and raised? And how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Uh, oh, I uh, was uh, born and raised in Israel, uh, in a small Latin community, a small socialist community called uh, Kibbutz. Um, uh, it is very different from uh, where I am now. Okay? So I left my uh, basically farming, heavily farming uh, uh, community uh, when I was 18 
uh, did my military service in uh, Israel, then went to uh, uh, college uh, in Tel Aviv, uh, discovered the big city and loved it. Uh, from there, I uh, got to the U.S. and uh, basically had my career here, which is uh, uh, at the University of Chicago, uh, and, I, and I cannot even start to describe how different is the, the <laughs> University of Chicago. <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll, we'll absolutely get into that. So, you know, it's funny because I, um, the thing I know about a kibbutz is obviously just because of, uh, you know, the WeWork show, Adam Newman talks about this. Not that that's a great example that we want to follow, but the thing I wondered about when you grow up in an environment like that, which is very different than sort of the nuclear family living in houses where we don't talk to each other, is what did you learn about relationships and uh, social dynamics from being in an environment like that? <laughs> I, I would say that um, when you grow in a, in a community that is... Uh, there's so much of this small and it is together. And when uh, you spend most of your day with uh, kids your age and, and not so much with uh, the grown-ups, then uh, you kind of, you learn by doing. Okay? So you uh, you learn that you need to get along with people and you need to be able to walk with, uh, with people. Um, if you are uh, want to uh, have a meal with uh, other people, then uh, you need to find your way in the group. Okay? You need to make friends. Okay? It's very different than if you uh, are having most of your meals with your, your family, in which case it is assumed that everybody's included. You don't need to find uh, your way. Uh, and, and this is uh, not uh, quite as I grew up, where you need to find your way. You need to walk with people. You need to uh, get along. Uh, that led to my understanding. Well, you know, there, there was like also uh, many years of research between uh, where I'm ending and, and where I started uh, uh, this investigation. But that partially fed into my investigation into the, the social dynamic in uh, in pursuing goals and how much we we work with other people and how much we connect to other people because. We share a goal or because they help us pursuing what we want to do. And, and just to, to give you an example, how like these very like early life experiences end up with like some research is like many years uh, down the road. Uh, one of the things that we are now studying is how much Feeling that the other person knows you and knows your goals is a predictor of relationship satisfaction. Okay. And, uh, basically what we find is that people connect to others who they feel know them. And it's more important for me to feel that, that you know me than that I know you. Okay. It's a better predictor of relationship satisfaction because we are looking for people that can help us. With whatever it is we want to achieve in our lives, it could be academics, it could be career, and traveling the, the world, and having children, and a person that knows us and, and wants to support us is the person we will connect with. Mm. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because as you were saying that, it reminded me of this uh, conversation that I had with Anders Ericsson before he passed. Uh, about uh, the book that he wrote about expertise. And he was talking about how people who are committed to mastery, when they choose partners, 
they need people that understand that obsessive drive. He's, and he said, he's like, people think the only reason celebrities date celebrities is because they're both famous. And he said, it's actually not true. He said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, but he said, you know, it's because they also have very sort of similar drives to each other where it's like, hey, here's an artist or an actor who's married to a musician. And, you know, when you say it that way, it suddenly makes even more sense. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, of course, uh, opportunities matter. There's some data that I, I think about 20% of the, the couples met each other at work. And that makes sense. It's a good work and, and you meet people. Uh, but uh, what makes relationships uh, stick is, uh, is this feeling that the other person has similar goals. And often that they... They have my goals in mind. Okay? Like they, they understand what I'm doing and, and they are uh, supportive uh, for that. We basically design our social environment to support the things that we want to achieve in our. Mm. Well, if for your social environment that you grew up in, uh, did your parents encourage any particular career paths? Because I, I don't know how it is when you grow up in Israel. Obviously, if you grow up in India, it's the standard, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer. And you know, my dad's a professor. And you know, so like I come from a family full of academics. And here I am, this sorting error that God made by giving me to them. Yeah, well, my, my, my lovely uh, parents uh, didn't really have any specific uh, set of goals for, for their children. They, uh, they, they actually did not have a college degree. Uh, but, uh, I have uh, four siblings and, and one of them is also a university professor. So, um, I, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think it, well, they, they were very supportive. They were very supportive of what we do. And, and, you know, let's connect it back to, to, uh, uh data because I, I think this is a really interesting point. It helps for the, the child parent relationship. It, it helps where the, the parent pursues similar goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, in, in a sense, like, if, yeah, your, your parent is an academic and you're an academic, that's, uh, that makes it easier to, to stay in that, in good relationship. But what matters for success is often not so much, uh, for, met- what, let me say it again. Uh, what matters for, for success in, in pursuing your goals is less uh, the extent to which you, you have parents or, or other people around you that pursue similar goals and more of how much they are supportive of your goals. That is, parents that want their children to be successful at school can make this happen, can support it. Okay? Their children are more successful at school. And this is regardless of how much the, the parent by herself or himself was successful at school. So, so you don't need to pursue the goal in order to support someone. You need to understand their goal and want them to, to be successful. And they will like you if you do. Well, which probably explains why most Indian kids get straight A's in school, because our joke is basically, are you kidding? Of course, we got straight A's in school. Our parents would give us up for adoption if we didn't. Yes, right? They don't don't celebrate it at all. Like nobody put our report cards on refrigerators. Anytime we got A minuses, my dad would just ask, why didn't you get an A plus? (laughs) What did you miss? Which question you answered incorrectly? Yeah. And and it's not about that that dad necessarily like showing their report card and uh, and telling you, well, I did so well at uh, whatever math. 
Uh, it's about the expectation that you will be great. And we're talking about parents, but this is true for everybody in our life. It could be a boss or, uh, you know, an assistant or they can, uh, someone at the gym that's helping you. Okay. Uh, all these people, when they want you to be successful, this is a, uh, the source of the, the inspiration. These are the best uh, role models. Uh, by the way, we I don't know how we already got all the way to, to role models. This is actually the, <laughs> the fourth part of my thinking about motivation. The last well, one. Well, don't worry. I've been known to do that to people. Uh, you know, the the thing that really, uh, what I realized looking back on this experience with my parents where we were just like, this is annoying. You guys are turning us into giant geeks uh, and we have no social life in high school. I think implicitly they were teaching us the value of intrinsic motivation by not rewarding us for getting good grades to the point where at a certain point they never has to, had to ask us to study or do anything. We just did it. Uh, which I only recognized in retrospect. But let's come back to that because I know that you write about intrinsic motivation later on. But the other thing I want to ask about is your time in the military, because I know that you know, Israeli, like all the Israelis I've ever met when I'm traveling usually are traveling because they're in that gap year after they're done with the military service. Um, so how, what do you learn by serving in the military? You know, uh, how does it differ from sort of uh, American military because here, nobody goes to mandatory military service. So I wonder like, how that shapes the entire perception. Because I had a, a, a peace activist uh, who was an Israeli guy who became an interdisciplinary artist. And he basically said his time in the military is what led him to become a peace activist. Yeah, I would uh, absolutely identify with that. Uh, I uh, didn't really like my time in the army, I didn't want to go. I uh, was not a great uh, soldier, uh, but I uh, learned that uh, that they, my resistance is uh, much more grounded in ideology. It's not just that uh, that it's not something that I enjoy doing, but it, it's something that. Uh, uh, that I often disagree with uh, on a more ideological uh, basis, and that nevertheless, because uh, in, in Israel everybody had to uh, to be a soldier. Uh, there are great people. Actually, you know what? It, it's not just unique to Israel. There, there are great people in the army. Actually, here at the University of Chicago, we, uh, we get uh, many veterans uh, in my school, and they are often my best students, actually. I find myself uh, thinking about uh, how much uh, the military experience uh, either like was good for them or that it attracted uh, uh, wonderful people. So I, uh, you can never know whether uh, uh, these people were uh, uh, great to begin with or the experience changed them. But it, what I learned it, even though I uh, do not uh, support uh, uh, most military uh, actions and uh, do not feel comfortable in a very hierarchical system, uh, which is the military. I personally feel much more comfortable in the academic system where everybody can argue uh, their, their point and uh, uh, there's no uh, upper and uh, lower uh, management to, mm. to some extent. Um, the, there are things that you learn from being in a different system, and uh, there are wonderful uh, people that, uh, that that come out of this more uh, rigid kind of uh, operation. Yeah, 
Well, I definitely want to talk about education because there's no way I'm, I don't let any single professor out of this conversation, out of my podcast without talking about education. But before we get there, I wanted to ask you about what your experiences were with culture shock when you first came to the United States. What did you find odd in comparison to where you were before? It would be a much shorter answer if I told you what I did not find odd. (laughs) (laughs) Everything was odd, right? I mean, like, when you you go into, like, the the, the junction uh, when you don't have a a green light just for you, right? You you turn left and, like, people are, are driving in front of you. Like, that was crazy. Okay, like, what are they thinking? Uh, yeah, and that, uh, um, and, uh, and then, uh, like, that, uh, grocery stores, uh, that, they, like, they are huge. Okay, and like, you can, like, do your shopping for, for hours. And they, they're like so much stuff. And, and this is crazy. Like, who, who needs, uh, dozens, uh, types of yogurt? Uh, just, uh, uh Learning the, you know, the, the culture and how, uh, what people mean when they present information in, in certain way. And, and it's funny because now when I, you know, go back to, to Israel, then you, you often hear from people that, that, that Americans are, are so, uh, uh, polite and, uh, and, and maybe insincere and, and maybe it's hard to know what they mean. It, it's not hard to know. You, you, just need to be part of the culture, okay? Then uh, I actually don't think that people here uh, in Chicago are any less direct uh, than the people in Israel. It's just that they, they are using a language that's less direct and cultural code that's less direct. And so you need to know how to, to win that. You need to understand uh, when a person wants to continue the conversation with you uh, <laughs> versus not, right? And <laughs> And it's not as direct as uh, uh, let's continue this conversation sometimes versus I never want to hear from you again. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, it's funny because I, I think you're absolutely right. There are certain cultures where a person would just abruptly end the conversation and you know say, I, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I remember a friend of yeah. mine called me in college once and uh, she's another Indian girl. And I picked up the phone and I was like, I'm stoned and I just smoked a joint. I don't want to talk to you. And I hung up and she called me back and she's like, Srinivas, that's not how you talk to girls. I'm like, okay, here goes. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but you just, you know, you're right. Like we definitely are very mindful. We're polite even when we're not wanting to be. Like we're not, we tend not to say what we're thinking a lot as Americans, I think. I think they think the expression, see you later. Okay, it doesn't yeah. mean anything, right? It, it's basically the same as goodbye. Yeah. Okay, but in other countries, see you later is very different than goodbye. And <laughs> And, and, and so you, uh, if you come here and, and you don't know the culture, you might be confused about what see you later means. When that person doesn't call you back or, yeah. or, okay. or see you yeah. again. Right. Uh, not, yeah, it's not later on. Yeah. Well, you're at the University of Chicago, which is one of the most elite universities in America, particularly in certain fields like business and economics. Uh, I only know this because it was one of those places that I kept getting brochures from. I still very distinctly remember the University of Chicago college admissions essay question. Uh, and I remember I wanted to apply just because this one question. The essay question was, write a short story that takes place in the frozen food section of a grocery store. Uh, and I never forgot that. But the reason I wanted to ask you about education in particular, you are a person who studies motivation and you're at one of the most elite educational institutions in the world where people, I think, just by default, are naturally motivated. People who are at a place like that are motivated. But if you are tasked with redesigning our current education system from the ground up using the principles of motivation from your research, how would you change it? And I realize we oh, could talk wow. for an hour yeah. about that alone. I, exactly. I, I just uh, 
got uh, either the best job or the worst job, which is that uh, uh, designing education. And um, I uh, believe in intrinsic motivation. I thought I believe I could study intrinsic motivation. I have uh, like findings that show that intrinsic motivation is probably the, the best predictor within adherence to whatever people are doing. And, and of course, to uh, education. And so I think that uh, one thing that I would really focus on is how to make study more immediately rewarding, how to make the the process of studying uh, closer to to the goal that you achieve by studying, which is the the aha moment, the the feeling that you just discovered, just realize that you did not uh, realize before, or that you're just enjoying yourself. It's just a fun place to, to, to be at. Okay. And, and the University of Chicago is very much a fun place to be at. And not every academic institution is, uh, is, is enjoyable. Okay. Uh, often that the classes are uh, too large. Okay. So it, like, you, you don't feel acknowledged. Okay. You feel anonymous. Uh, and often there, uh, there is not sufficient challenge. Okay. So it's either too easy or too hard, but not quite tailored to, to your level to kind of create like this level of curiosity and, uh, and challenge that we know it increases, uh, uh motivation. Uh, there was, uh, now a study that, that I went with, uh, Kaylee Woolley a while back. Uh, in a school in Florida, and it was just an average uh, school. And what we did was uh, going to a math class and playing music and bringing some snacks and uh, and color pencils. Okay, so we're basically making it a party. Okay? And what we found is that the students were were studying harder. Okay, they were attempting uh, more uh, math problems now. I mentioned it because in, in this study, we increased intrinsic motivation. We made that this hour of studying math more fun, not by actually making the math more interesting. Okay. So we, we kind of took the, the indirect uh, route to, to get there. Okay? We played music. I personally cannot walk when there is music playing, but for these kids, that made it, uh, a fun class, okay, that, that made it uh, uh, interesting and, and, and different and they were uh, intrigued. And, and so I, I would really focus on how to make every hour that you spend in school an end in itself, okay, something that feels good, it feels right, it could be challenging, could be just pleasant, uh, could involve music and, and, and dancing, uh, but also uh, scratching your head and trying to figure out and, and discover uh, uh, something. Uh, how to make school about that? How to get kids to be uh, intrinsically uh, motivated? And unfortunately, I think that this is much more likely in uh, the private uh, system. Uh, and, and we need to do much more in the public system for like, you know, lower school, but also for uh, college education. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that of all the answers I've heard, this is one of the first one that people have given you. You're the first person who's given me an answer that didn't talk about the content, but about the design of the experience. And that's so fascinating. I never thought about it that way because 
Yeah, I was a Berkeley undergrad, and when you were talking about classes that are too large, I'm thinking to myself, yep, I'm anonymous. So anonymous, in fact, that I had a cousin who was in a math class, a calculus class our freshman year, and he said some guy walked up to the professor like 20 minutes after the midterm ends, even the professor had been yelling at him to stop. And he went up to the professor. He looked at the professor. He's like, do you even know who the hell I am? And he stuck his exam in the middle of all the blue books and just left. I thought to myself, you know, this is what you learn at a place like Berkeley is how to manipulate bureaucracies. Uh, But the thing that I I wonder is, is why are we so resistant to this change? Or why is the system at large so resistant to a change uh, that has been standardized? Because you talk about intrinsic motivation. And when I look back at college, granted, I also didn't understand a lot of this at that age. But every choice I made was extrinsically motivated. It was like, oh, you know what? It's the late 90s. Everybody is majoring in computer science because guess what? Everybody's getting rich in Silicon Valley. So I, was, I tried my hand at computer science only to discover I'm terrible at computer science after two semesters. Uh, but I noticed that looking back, I thought to myself, wow, every single choice I made throughout college was based not on curiosity, but on how would this help me get a job? And I don't feel like I was alone in that, and particularly at elite institutions. I think that's quite common. It, it's not necessarily a mistake to, to the extent that um, many things that you will find enjoyable, you might not experience this immediately. Okay? So, so maybe uh, you will enjoy computer science, but it will not be the, the first couple of weeks of, of doing that. Uh, no, in, in another uh, uh, study that, that we ran with uh, like the, the second city, uh, 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 improv club here uh, at Chicago, uh, uh, which is uh, basically a, a famous improv club that runs classes where you can go and, and learn how to develop your confidence and, and your presentation skills by doing improvisation. And most people that are not like professional uh, actors, they feel very uncomfortable the first time that they do this. I know I felt very uncomfortable. And so, so learning improv is, is all, they, the lay person is not something that you will do in the first class would feel like that's the best thing I ever did. Uh, maybe like uh, learning computers for, for you at Berkeley. And, and that's fine. They actually, what we found is that if we tell people to, to embrace the difficulty, okay, it's it, that you're going for the first classes to feel uncomfortable, they were more motivated to come back to the next class. Okay, they kind of fell well. I, you know, I, I had the goal to feel uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable. That's going well. Okay. And, and so I am not saying that you should only do what feels immediately comfortable. You might never read any book that is challenging. Yeah. You might not uh, watch any show that, that takes some time to get into. Art often requires looking at, at, at this picture again and again until you, you finally uh, click. So perseverance is good, but eventually you need to uh, enjoy what you are doing. Okay? And, uh, and the mistake is to think that you can have your entire career doing something that you, you don't like. Well, uh, that's going to be a very unsatisfying uh, career. Uh, and I, and I will again go with data because I, I really, I, I think in terms of uh, uh, data. So 
Now, and another uh, study on uh, intrinsic motivation with uh, Caitlin Woolley was a PhD student working with me here at faculty at Cornell. Uh, we uh, had people choose between listening to the, the song Hey Jude and, um, and listening to a loud alarm. And, and, and the trick was that the loud alarm paid more. And so the majority of our participants, about 70%, chose to uh, uh, listen to the loud alarm. Okay, so basically they are telling us, no, no I, I prefer to listen to the loud alarm over uh, uh, Hey Jude by, by the Beatles. And then they, they, they do that. And what we find is people that chose the alarm regret their choice. They, when they have to do it, they say, well, you know, I would rather get a 10% uh, pay cut and listen to the, the nice song. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, like, yeah, try to have uh, more uh, songs in your career than, than louder alarms. Yeah. Well, let's get specifically into the book. And I, I think I want to tackle this in probably what is somewhat a nonlinear order uh, first, because it's the beginning of the year. People are listening to this. And uh, the thing that I think happens at the beginning of the year, and we've had Katie Milkman here, whose research I know you cited in the book, uh, is that it's a temporal landmark. So despite the fact that there is this power to temporal landmarks, New Year's resolutions often end up being more like fantasies than real plans. And one of the things that you say is fantasies might feel good, but they're largely ineffective as a motivational tool. And when abstract goals become too abstract, they're at the risk of turning into fantasies that substitute for action. And I read that and I just kind of sat here imagining all these people who sit around on New Year's Day making plans that are fantasies or putting vision boards that they're going to stare at and thinking to myself, so you're just going to sit on your ass and stare at this thing. And every one of these goals is going to materialize, which is why I wanted to have you <laughs> as a guest, because you specifically told me you think about everything in terms of data. So let's talk about how we don't become a victim of fantasies when we are at a temporal landmark, like the start of the year. Yes, sir. I, first, I agree that uh, temporal landmarks uh, work. Okay, And around you, your people think about resolutions. Uh, we uh, looked at it uh, for a few years here in the U.S. And last year, we uh, ran some studies in China. Uh, around uh, there and uh, New Year and we found that like this is a time where people set uh, goals. Not all these goals will fail, okay, but a uh, large proportion will. And and, and so uh, when we follow up in ours, there are uh, some people that are still pursuing, but some people have already dropped their uh, their goals. Then we 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 keep following these goals all the way until the the following uh, November and uh, and and. I remember most of the, the people uh, dropped their goals, still about 20% that are still doing the, the thing. And it's interesting to think um, what, what makes people stick to their, to their goals. There are a few factors. You mentioned uh, the, the degree to which the, the goal is, um, is a plan as opposed to a fantasy. And, you know, fantasies, what characterize them is that you, um, you envision yourself already achieving the, the goal. Okay. So you're already like at your uh, ideal, uh, whatever, uh, physical shape. Okay. You're already like, uh, so you envision yourself uh, winning the medal. Okay. Or, uh, uh, the person who, uh, has not been, uh, uh drinking or, uh, you know, the, the fully employed person, whatever it is that you, 
that, that you want to achieve. And this fantasy is not really a recipe for, for an action. It, it's nothing like a plan. Okay. A plan for getting a job means that I will, uh, uh, call my, my friends and my connections and I will work on my uh, resume and here are the steps that I need to take. And, uh, and the goal is to take all these steps so that eventually I'm uh, employed. It's very different than fantasizing about uh, having a job. Uh, Gabrielle Ottingen did some studies in which she found that when, uh, um, gosh, I believe it was law students. Mm -hmm. It was students in some professional uh, setting when they were fantasizing uh, about having a job, that by itself actually decreased their motivation to send applications. It was when they had a plan that they were uh, sending applications. So, you know, fantasies are fun and nice and like on your year or eve when you take, uh, I don't know, holding the champagne. It's nice to fantasize about how the year is going to uh, be terrific for me. Uh, but it's not a, a self-control uh, strategy. It's not going to get you anywhere. And, and so just don't count of this as a motivational strategy. It's just indulgence. Yeah. Well, you talk about three traps in setting and framing a goal. Uh, one, you say is setting a goal that's too specific or concrete instead of an abstract goal. Setting a goal in terms of something you wish to avoid rather than something you wish to approach. And I don't remember what the other one was because I think it was tied to all of this. So what are these traps and how do people avoid them? But then the other thing that struck me was how do you, how do you find this balance between abstract and concrete? Because I know in Stephen Kotler's research, one of the things he talks about is the fact that clear goals are a flow trigger. Uh, so, you know, how do you tie the abstract to the concrete, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, so you, you mentioned a few things that... Uh, the absolutely concrete is interesting. And it's interesting because in a way, it's like the, the, the how, which is the, the concrete. Well, this is necessary because I think I, I will not know how to do something unless I answer this question. Uh, the why, which is the more abstract, is, is necessary because like, why would I do it if I cannot answer that, uh, the why? Okay. Uh, what we find is that you need to ask both questions and Basically, when you, when you set a goal, you want to ask a few why questions. You mentioned uh, uh, taking a, a college class. I need to take this class. Why? Okay, because uh, uh, or if I pass this class, I can take the next class. Why? Okay, why do you need to take the next class? Because I, I want to get this college major. Why? Okay, because I, I, I want to get into some profession. I want to understand some problem. Ask these questions. Okay, go. Go more abstractly, understand the, the reason uh, behind what you're doing. Then at one point, the, the why becomes too abstract. Okay? And if you just ask this question enough times, eventually it becomes just like, I want to be happy. Mm -hmm. okay? and, and at that point, I say, well, you know, but we all want to be happy. And if you think about how to be happy, so now let's go one level below okay? and start asking how. Well, that is not necessarily going to get you to take this class. It's like how to be happy. That's not by uh, studying computer science for you, mate. Okay. And, and, and so if the, the why becomes so absent that it's no longer 
connects to how, or if you don't get back to where you started when you asked the how questions, it, then uh, then you became too uh, too abstract. It is no uh, longer useful. Now, this is on the level of understanding the relationship between you, your means and goals. Is it how every goal is, is a means to do something else and, and how to structure it such that you understand your, your overriding goals, your, your upset without losing sight of the, the concrete. There is also research that show, shows that just being in an abstract mindset, okay, so it's not about a specific goal, it's just like being able to think more abstractly about your life helps you basically understand your priorities. Okay? Think about what you want to achieve with your life and just have a better uh, understanding, which is often something that is easier uh, from some distance. So there is research by uh, Yaakov Chopin and, and Ivan Lieberman and Ken Fujita that, that shows that just this mindset of taking some distance, some looking at things from above allows you to uh, look at your life and ask, am I even doing what's best for me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. 
Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Wow. Uh, well, let's talk about optimism. I mean, you mentioned uh, Gabrielle Ottingen's work, and I remember the thing that stood out to me most from that book was the story she tells about Michael Phelps, where she says, you know, people visualize themselves winning the gold medal, whereas Phelps visualized himself not winning the gold medal because his goggles got filled with water. And because of that, when it happened, he was prepared. And this is a battle I have with one of my best friends constantly because he thinks I'm negative and I think he's a delusional optimist. Um, and we balance each other out beautifully. Like I always say, you know, you should anticipate the worst so you can be prepared for when it happens. And he's just like, no, you should just expect the best. And you talk about this. You say that optimism caused by the planning fallacy is a mistake you'd wish to correct. It happens because when budgeting time and money, people tend to focus on the task at hand while neglecting all other demands on their resources. And, you know, I thought about this when I started reading Don Moore's book, Perfectly Confident, and how we tend to be overconfident about things that we can't control. So how do we balance optimism with realism when it comes to setting goals? Oh, that, that, that's a good one. And I uh, know I, I, I hear you about uh, always fighting for the, the wars. Uh, the, the, thing to think, to, the thing to remember about optimism is that... Uh, Optimism is often a, a motivational strategy. It's often a way to challenge ourselves. When you are, uh, you get up in, in the morning and, and you say, I'm going to uh, like climb many a uh, flight of stairs today and I'm going to uh, finish a project at, at work and I'm uh, going to uh, cook uh, an amazing uh, uh, and, and healthy uh, meal. Uh, and work uh, uh, like that to, to get connected to like some relationships, some people that I didn't talk to. Well, uh, the, uh, you're optimistic, right? There's no way you can fit all this to, to one day. Uh, but you're also motivating yourself to work on all these different goals. And, and basically what we consistently find is that, that these optimists, okay, these people that say that they will do more and that they will do it sooner, are doing more and sooner. They, that is, they might not quite meet their unrealistic expectations, but they will do more than if they expected very little. Okay? And so, you no, know, when, when someone, uh, when a student tells me that they will uh, finish the assignment, you know, way before uh, what I think is is reasonable, well, go for it. Okay, challenge yourself. Okay, you think that you can finish it very quickly, and you know, if you expect to finish it. Sooner than you're going to start working on it uh, uh, today, as opposed to uh, uh, procrastinate and, and, and leave it for, for later. So optimism is 
often a self-control and a motivational strategy. Uh, but some optimism is uh, uh, is a fallacy, and uh, some of it is just uh, uh, not uh, not taking everything that you need to take into account when you uh, make a plan. Uh, so you kind of need to to consider whether this ambitious plan that you have for yourself or for the people around you. How important is to to actually be accurate? If accuracy is is, is critical, then uh, beware of the planning fallacy. If accuracy is not really the concern, then what you are trying to do is like motivate yourself to climb the mountain. Then now go for it. Okay, and succumb to the planning fallacy. Okay? You you will overall climb more mountains than if you didn't. So basically, if we're you know, having, making a cancer treatment drug or working in a hospital, we want to be aware of the planning fallacy. If we're making art or writing a book, we could use it to our advantage. Yes. Also, you know, if uh, at work, if you uh, set a schedule for yourself that will affect other people, uh, then uh, the coordination is, is going to suffer uh, if your predictions are inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, but if you set uh, some aspirational deadlines for yourself for when you will finish some projects that you have at home and, and that no one else is, is really affected by those, then you are motivating yourself and there is no harm in, in being behind on your projects. I, I, I strongly believe that uh, they call these like overachiever people. They, they are uh, very much those people that plan for too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Well, okay. So I think that makes a perfect segue into talking about incentives because you say to optimize the impact of your incentives, you want to reward the right thing, whether it's teamwork, creative solutions, successfully preventing harm or a pest-free neighborhood rather than lots of dead rats. Of course, recognizing that you've incentivized the right thing for yourself. So you know, when I read that, and this just came up in my mind, I thought back to two programs when I was in elementary school, probably, which I'm sure your research has come across, DARE, the Drug uh, Abuse Resistance Education Program, which apparently did absolutely nothing to combat drug use. I was like, you know, I went to DARE. I had a friend who told me once, he was like, the way he interpreted DARE was don't do any of this stuff. It feels really good and will make you, you know, feel really interesting feelings. And he tried every drug under the sun after DARE. Um, I can tell you it didn't work on me. We'll leave it at that. Uh, but then there was another one that I very distinctly remember this in third grade. Um, if you read four books every month, you would get a pizza, a personal pan pizza from Pizza Hut. And, you know, Indian parents making you eat Indian food every day. Personal pan pizza was like the greatest thing in the world. But it didn't actually increase the number of books people read. So talk to me about how we design uh, incentives, particularly in situations where you're dealing with outcomes that you can't control. So, for example, I had a... Uh, client who came to me once or a potential client who said, I want you to help me sell a million copies of a, a book. And I told her, I was like, I can't help you do that because I've never done it. And I think you're setting yourself up for failure because you can't control that in any way at all. So in particularly in terms of uh, in places like that, where we have outcomes that we have no control over, how do we create the right incentives to stay motivated? So that was a very long question, but let I'm... me just clarify <laughs> something. That yeah. I, you cannot possibly argue that Pizza is better than Indian food, right? No, I trust me. I, I made that argument okay. when I was, you know, in third grade. Then I went to college, and within a yeah. month, I was just like, "God, I want to go home and eat some home cooked Indian food." Now, 
Okay, you know, most yeah. of the time when my mom is like, we're ordering out, we're like, why the hell are we ordering out? <laughs> yeah, just just wanted to make sure yeah, because we're clear my on that. parents, yeah, made like the best cuisine on the planet. I would not Trust go me. for pizza. No, that, uh, that also was, you, yeah, you, know, you mentioned unsophisticated yeah. third third grade thinking. That that makes sense. You mentioned the dad where I suggested that this quote will make sense. I, in, in my book, I'm I'm talking about that. Uh, the Hanoi Massacre, which is basically a, a French colonist program from the beginning of the 20th century, uh, where they, uh, uh, in, in Hanoi, uh, in Vietnam, they, they offered residents uh, one cent per a dead rat. And uh, uh, surprise, surprise, uh, people were starting to, to breed uh, uh, rats so that there are more dead rats so that they can claim the money. Okay, so that. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's another good this quote comes from. Yeah. Uh, so, so lots of examples for uh, incentives uh, systems that, that backfire, okay, so that, that you might actually uh, now need to uh, have the right so that you can claim the prize or that you uh, find a different way uh, or that uh, I know people are doing something that is unethical because this is the way to get the, the, the reward, okay, so... Uh, they like uh, you, you are getting paid for uh, uh, reading uh, four books. Well, what if you just say that you have read four books? You just check them out of the library and never read them, right? So you, say, well, you, <laughs> yeah. you find other ways, right? Like, uh, 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 and so, uh, uh, so this is a like a problem with incentives. We know that incentives sometimes uh, do uh, uh, work now. Incentives work when we we understand them as um, as an additional kind of mini corn. Okay? So that uh, so that the main reason that let's say I think that someone doesn't want to use drugs is uh, uh, because they uh, they feel that uh, they will have a, a better something, a better life. Uh, uh, they will be able to experience things in in, in a better way. Uh, and then they can also get something from their, their teacher within the, like, as an incentive. The, the main reason to, to read a book for a child is because the book is interesting. Hey, the book is not interesting. The child is not going to read the book. Okay. And, and then the, the incentives, it says, and we are also going to recognize you as, uh, as, as a person who uh, reads uh, books to the extent that kids even think that this is a, a worthy, uh, reward and, uh, and then this is, uh, uh useful. Uh, the worry with incentives is that often they obscure the, the purpose of why, why I'm doing it in the first place. Okay. And, and so if, if there is no very clear, like long term reward for pursuing a goal, if the only reason is that the short term incentive, that, that can actually make you forget about the long term goal. And, and, and to give you a concrete example like that, now, the, the reason that people should not uh, uh, like drive under the influence is, is because they, that uh, will significantly, significantly risk their, their life. Okay? So their life expectancy will be significantly lower uh, if they will drive under the influence. Um, but if, if people believe that the reason not to do that is that you will get caught, or if uh, uh, kids believe that uh, uh, the, the reason that you should not do that is because you have not turned 21 yet and we get into uh, trouble, then they, 
they might get confused about why uh, why they are doing it in the first place. And you know, where they might turn twenty one and then uh, uh, drink too much. Okay, beyond what is is healthy and, and still fun. And they might uh, drive under the influence uh, when they are less concerned with that police uh, and being around and, and, and risk their lives. And, and I think this is just one example but, uh, that illustrates why, why incentives can confuse us and confuse others when we set incentives uh, for them. Lots of folk can be heavy on economics on incentives. They, they need to match the activity. Uh, it's a... Uh, uh, actually increases motivation when you pay people for any activity that involves like luck and gam- gambling. Mm-hmm. Okay? Like people are excited about that. So kids that play a, a game of luck when uh, they were paid in some tokens, they were more intrinsically motivated. Uh, the same kind of incentives that uh, decreased motivation to uh, solve problems for, for another group of children. And this is a classic study already by they are you Kuglanski going all the way to the to the seventies? You take the same incentive. It works for playing a game of luck. It undermines motivation to solve uh, problems uh, at school, and and it's really just uh, understanding how people think about the monetary incentive uh, in this particular situation. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, what about the the situation where, like I said, we we have an outcome that we can't control, for example, like somebody who wants to you know, write a, a book or grow a blog, because I know that you tie it to progress. And having read uh, Teresa Amabili's book, it took me a long time to realize that if I could, and I, this is what I always tell people, is measure your progress with metrics that you can control. Don't measure it based on, you know, uh, basically like metrics and things that, uh, you know, like things like traffic or how many people want my books. That was a huge shift for me that ironically helped me accomplish my goal of selling a thousand books. Yes. So you want to monitor progress. You want to feel that, that there is progress and, um, and, and working on a goal without experiencing progress can be uh, quite upsetting. You really feel like you are, you are not moving uh, anywhere. Uh, in order to be able to see progress, there are a few things that you can do. And, and what you mentioned, which is probably where I would start, well, measuring on something that you can evaluate. Okay. I, I, it's the, the example. I'm not the first one to give it, but I use the example of calories, which are notoriously very hard to, to monitor. We don't actually know how many calories we, we consume. We don't see calories. They are very hard to. To calculate, so it's just not a great metric. Okay, uh, having half of your plate uh, veggies uh, this much is here. Okay, this is something that you can see. And I, the, the other thing, say sometimes it's really hard to see progress when you look ahead. So look back. Okay, if you just start something. Okay, if you, you mention a goal of of selling, uh, let's say one thousand uh, uh, books, well. Uh, if you only uh, uh, sold uh, uh, 20 or 30 or 40, then looking back and seeing that you move from 20 to 40 is much more motivating than looking ahead and, and, and see that it's so far away. Okay, the, the, at work often, like when we work on, on a project and we are just at the beginning, it, it's easier to look back at, and look at what 
we've already uh, done. It also increases commitment. And this is another uh, example for a study that we ran this time uh, in Seoul uh, with uh, Ming Zhang Ku, uh, where uh, people working in an advertising company were more motivated to stay in their current world when they reflected on what they've already achieved, when they monitor their progress in terms of looking. Uh, by the way, they were actually more motivated to move on and move to the next world when they were looking at what's still missing, okay? when they were monitoring their progress in the more uh, like intuitive way of what I still need to do. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, so there's one other aspect of this that you talk about, and that is uh, this principle of maximizing or maximizing attainment when it comes to goals. Uh, and I remember thinking to myself, like, that, that made so much sense to me because it's like, okay, I'll make my goal to write a thousand words a day. And it actually helps you accomplish all of these other goals, which are like writing books, publishing blog posts consistently. Can you explain the principle of maximizing attainment and how it relates to the dilution principle that you talk about? Because it seems like the principle of maximizing attainment, correct me if I'm wrong, is the antidote to the dilution principle. Yeah, let me think. I'm not sure I understand your question. Yeah, no, fair enough. Okay, so you talk about this dilution principle, which, as I understand it, you know, when we're pursuing too many goals, it pulls us in multiple directions. We don't make progress towards any of them. But then this idea of maximizing attainment, as I understood it, was that you could have one activity that helps you accomplish multiple goals. Okay, got, 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 got it where you see that, the, the discrepancy. Yes. Uh, so by the, the principles of maximizing attainment, you, you, you want to, um, you know, achieve more for your investment. Okay. So you, you want to, uh, choose the, the exercise that, uh, improves your health, but you also, uh, uh get to, uh, catch up on your TV and then being entertained and maybe do it with a friend. So you also have some quality time with them and, and a bunch of other things. Uh, by the principle of dilution, when an activity achieves only one thing, then th- there is less of a perceptual dilution. So it, it feels very much uh, wide for uh, that thing. Okay? Like that, uh, the person that, uh, thinks about exercising only in terms of running, okay, the, the avid runner, uh, for them, there is a, a very strong connection between running and and feeling they are in a good shape. Okay? There, there is no other way to feel this way and uh, they, they don't run for uh, any other uh, reason. And, and so now we, we can sometimes experience this tension where uh, if you get uh, more for your investment, uh, then your investment doesn't feel like it's uniquely related to, to any of uh, uh, these goals. I would say that it still makes sense to uh, uh, maximize attainment. Uh, it's just that, that, that you need to understand why it's not intuitive for you. It's not intuitive for you because when you don't maximize attainment, is when it feels so right. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you have, uh, um, no, I'll give you, like, I remember the one point I, I had a student that told me about another professor that is, uh, is so smart and like, uh, that, that this other professor was so impressive. And I, and I asked, like, why, 
like, what so impressed you? Why do you think this person is such genius and, and, and so smart? And, and my student said, because I don't understand what they are saying. Okay. And <laughs> Right. Anyway, so like, you know, if someone is, uh, is, is unclear and, uh, and, and doesn't teach very well, then you might think that they are smart by some like logic of delusion. Okay. But it's not that you want a teacher that, uh, uh, that doesn't communicate very well and that, uh, it doesn't relate to you very well because, uh, uh like that, they, you will uh, perceive a stronger connection. Uh, between their, their academic achievements and like their communication style. Uh, and maybe that was not a good example, but hopefully you, you understand the idea that like, you know, let's take food. Maybe that's a better example. Hey, you want to eat food that is healthy and tasty and uh, uh, available. It's in season. It's not too expensive. Now it's, it's a fallacy to, to think that um, food that is not tasty is healthier, okay, or uh, uh, that, that food that is uh, unavailable right now, okay, that it's uh, out of season is, uh, is, is tastier, okay. It, it's not like that. Like, I mean, the, you really need to find the food that serves all uh, these goals. So, so you need to go for maximizing attainment, realizing that your mind will often uh, Play this trick on you, uh, getting you to think that if it's good for one thing, it's probably not good for the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it got me thinking uh, about sort of surfing. Uh, so I started surfing and I noticed it, my mom would think that this is all about exercise. Well, it has nothing to do with exercise. That's just a convenient fringe benefit. Like you talk to anybody who surfs, snowboards or skis, any of these things, they're like, no, this is just a way to, to exercise just a convenient benefit of something that just feels really good. It's a fringe benefit. But it also had this huge ripple effect on every area of my life. I got up earlier every day. Um, I drank less. I stopped smoking when I drank. And it was all of it due to this one thing, which I, I feel like is kind of uh, the principle of maximizing attainment at work. Yeah. Yes, I love this. It's, uh, yes. Okay, so you, you can get all, all these like extra benefits and you understand how uh, the, the perception of, uh, of conflict is, is often misleading. It's often an illusion. Okay. Like by, by, by doing one thing, you'll actually facilitate another. Okay. By, uh, you know, going on education, you, you're actually helping your work. Okay. Like mm-hmm. it, it's not uh, a, a conflict. Okay, and leisure is a way to support your work just as much as walking is a, is a way to afford your leisure time. Yeah. Well, let's talk about two final components of this. Uh, one is sort of how motivation fluctuates over the course of a goal, because, you know, I think as yours and Dan Pink's work have showed in his book, um, when, it, as I understand it now, that, you know, we're very motivated at the beginning, the motivation dwindles in the middle. And then it, it picks up steam at the end. And I've seen this myself too, where, you know, you closer you are to the finish line, the more you're motivated to finish. So let's, let's start there and then we'll talk about a learning from your failure. Yeah. So this is the middle problem. And uh, uh, if there, there is an end, okay, then motivation will peak then. Certainly motivation is uh, high at the beginning. Uh, in the middle is when we, um, we kind of lose sight. Our actions seem to have much less impact. Okay. So that you, you know, that you're, uh, uh, like, uh, let's say 
four-year college. Okay? Like the, the first year, you, you feel like, well, I already like, did my first year, like the last year, well, I'm almost done. Like in the middle age, you don't feel like you, your efforts really uh, does something. Okay? We are, uh, when I studied this is with uh, Wima Tuatilleri, who's now at Northwestern, uh, where we, we looked at uh, uh, Jewish uh, people in, in Israel lighting the menorah over the, the eight days of Hanukkah, okay? And if you're unfamiliar with the tradition, the only thing that you need to do for Hanukkah is just lighting this menorah for eight consecutive days. And almost everybody did this on the first day, and uh, the majority did this on the last day in the Middle East when they, they didn't quite follow the, uh, the tradition. Uh, and so, uh, uh, middle hour, and uh, when it's harder, uh, we want to keep them short. Uh, we want to, uh, work harder on increasing our motivation in, uh, in the middle. So as, as much as you can, just try to, uh, have short term goals. Okay. Like if, if a weekly exercise goal, it's not that you don't want to exercise next week, but it's like by having it as a weekly exercise goal, you have a short middle. So an annual saving goals. Okay, of course, I also want to save next year, but by thinking about this in terms of one year, there is a less of a, of a long middle, and uh, and and this is helpful. Mm, I, I love that. It makes me think like instead of committing to swimming every day of the month, I say, okay, I'm going to go three times this week, so the middle becomes yes. shorter. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Right. So no. So sometimes it doesn't make sense. Right? Like having a, a morning swimming goal that's hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, uh, they try to get to that that lowest unit that uh, is sensory. Yeah. You can actually engage in the action. That. Yeah. So I think the, the thing is, I mean, everybody here knows that you need to learn from your failures, but there's something that you said that really struck me. You say negative information on failure has two features that often make it superior. It tends to be unique. And while it's rare, it's also more elaborated. And the reason that struck me the most is my dad and I were driving back from the airport last night and my brother-in-law and I were asking him about PhD students. And he tells me this story about how he failed one of his students in the qualifying exam. And that student actually asked that my dad be removed from his qualifying exam committee the next time around. And uh, when he came up you know, for his second one, my dad actually was the one who gave him a recommendation for another job. And he said, he went to that student, he said, see, you realize that because I failed you, your knowledge improved significantly. Uh, and he said, yeah, now I, now I understand that. But uh, to your point, like we don't really learn very much from our successes. Like I've never sat around and said, okay, what was the cause of the, the success? I don't ever do the postmortem when something is successful. I definitely do when I fail at something. I, I, I love this example. <laughs> There is actually, uh, uh, as your story uh, suggests, there is often not enough that is being learned from uh, negative feedback, and often the the lesson that people take from negative feedback is just don't don't go there, don't try that, it's not for you. Okay, D- don't choose your dad as a, uh, as an advisor uh, because he he gave me negative feedback, uh, which is of course the, the wrong lesson, but very intuitive to people. So we don't learn a lot from negative information, from negative feedback, partially because it doesn't feel good, okay, but also partially because it's harder. And it's just not intuitive for consumers, for example, to look at negative reviews okay, when they're choosing a product. It's much more intuitive to, 
sort of positive reviews. So, so, so this is the kind of uh, the negative information that is not personally relevant. Yeah, I, I don't own this product. It, like, it shouldn't hurt me if, if someone else is, is writing something negative. Uh, but it's not the information that I, I think I should look at. And um, what we, we find is that often actually negative information uh, is the best predictor of success. So it, it enables success, okay, as in your example, okay, it motivates someone to try harder and it predicts success in, in the sense that uh, negative information is often informative. Okay? Like you read negative reviews in, in my previous uh, example and you know whether these complaints are serious or not. Okay, like if, uh, if someone tells you that the, uh, the, the prices so in, in a restaurant are, are too high, then uh, uh, you don't have much concern about the quality of the food. And if they tell you that, uh, that they, they got stomach flu after uh, eating there. Uh, if uh, uh, you read positive reviews, they tend to be quite generic. They have less uh, information uh, in uh, if someone highlights what is wrong about the, the way you do something, well, maybe what they highlight is, is actually a, a very minor, very easy to change, very small things. And, and I can predict that, that you're doing your job pretty good than if they, they highlight some, something much more uh, substantial. And so negative uh, information and negative feedback in particular is not only necessary in order to learn what's not, okay, which is often harder. It's also informative to the extent that there is more variance in, in negative feedback. And, and you can see whether the, the, the complaints, the, the criticism is uh, uh, more substantive or not. You know, it's funny. I had a student who asked for a refund on one of my courses. And to your point, he gave me so much feedback. He basically wrote probably a page and I went and immediately looked at all of it. I was like, okay, you want implementation exercises done? Like he gave me things that I could do to actually make the course. Like I didn't get him to buy the course again, but he made me see flaws that I didn't recognize. I thought to myself, wow, this is actually really useful. Um, and I made major changes based on what he told me, even though he didn't buy the course again. And yeah, right. So, so this is, uh, as I'm listening to you, this is such a great example for what most of us intuitively not do. Okay. If someone is asking for a refund for my service, I kind of not want to ever see them again. Okay. That, so to be able to engage with them and actually hear what they have to say requires some, some confidence, some expertise, uh, some, like just retrieving our mental uh, resources, securing our ego. Uh, let me say that um, often thinking about what advice I would give to another person is uh, is a way to force yourself to learn from such negative experiences. Yeah, so I, I'm, you know, so sometimes I think negative feedback can be useful. Other times I think it's just cruel. So for example, uh, book reviews are a really good one. Like I will always say, okay, let me go look at the, the best review of a book. Let me go look at the worst review and see what the contrast is between the two of them. But for example, I had a book that hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. It was a self-published book. This woman's review was, I hope this guy is a better surfer than he is a writer. <laughs> you know, I mean, and to this day, that's the only one of my book reviews I can quote to you by memory. 
Um, but that's not particularly useful feedback. But I've had listeners who are this is the one piece of feedback I always listen to when I see this come in and I know it's a criticism. They always preface it with, I love your show, but and I'm like, OK, this is somebody I need to listen to. Yeah, that's the, yeah, this is interesting. And, uh, now, when we look at, uh, at book reviews, which we did some work with book reviews, we actually, we look at uh, the positive and negative within the same review. Okay, so we were doing a different exercise than what you just uh, uh, did. They, they, uh, they're taking a, like a one-style uh, review uh, that might not necessarily have a lot of information and, you know, that, uh, could be for all kinds of reasons. Uh, yeah. Publishing a book myself, I learned that there is a, a whole, uh, a community of, uh, of people who will write negative reviews with some like business calls in mind. So let's not go there. Right? Like yeah. that's, uh, that, that's really, uh, uh, not, uh, not about psychology, uh, more about, uh, uh, strategy and unethical strategy, but, if you look at, uh, at professional reviews and you separate the good comments from the bad comments, okay, like the, the comments about what we love about the book and, and the comments and what uh, could be uh, improved, uh, then we often see that there is really useful information in, uh, uh, in the negative review. But this is conditional on that. <laughs> no, the reviewer is trying to help, right? Like yeah. the reviewer is trying to be a, 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 a accurate it like helps yeah no absolutely well let me wrap this up with two final questions i you know let's wrap this up with a concrete goal which i think everybody has some semblance or variation of this goal at the beginning of the year and that's to make more money so let's just apply all of your principles to that one idea let's just say okay i want to increase my income um how do we use what you've taught us to do that Oh, by the way, the, the most common uh, uh, New Year goal uh, in our data is health-related goal. Really? Okay. So, okay. But yeah, so, this, so the, the most common is exercise more, eat better. But uh, financial goals, which is, uh, well, for many people, is getting a job, getting a promotion, uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, getting out of debt uh, uh, and, and all this in a way related to make more money out. Um, Therefore, and I think around twenty percent, if I uh, remember it correctly. So uh, yes, yeah, so so let's go with that. Uh, make more money. Okay, so uh, think about four things. Okay, uh, how do you uh, set this goal? Okay, so like, uh, why do you want to uh, make more money? I mean, money is, is a means. Okay, like for most of us, it's not an end. Okay, so what is it you're trying to achieve? I asked like these why questions understand your, your, your goal. Uh, can you make it intrinsic? They are there, uh, fun, interesting, challenging, uh, ways to, uh, uh, make money. Uh, can, can you think about a way that, uh, is, is engaging, uh, for you? The approach goals usually work better than uh, avoidance goals. So think about it more as just like approaching financial, uh, comfort uh, and then avoiding the discomfort. Uh, part two, monitor progress. Uh, how do you do this? How uh, do you know how much money uh, you were making and, and how how much you are farther from where you have started and closer to uh, uh, where you, you want to go? 
Uh, if your goal is to uh, uh, make a, a million dollar, uh, I would say uh, probably better to look back, unless you are extremely wealthy to begin with, okay, and look back to the, uh, at what you have achieved. Monitor your progress where you can see progress and not where it's going to be so far and, 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 and daunting. Learn from negative feedback. Uh, there are the bucket of uh, motivational strategies. Uh, uh, your other goals. Okay, you, see, you, see, you want to be more financially comfortable, but this is not the only thing that you want. Okay, You probably also uh, want to uh, take care of yourself as a person. Okay, You want to uh, grow intellectually okay, or mentally. You want to connect to people. Maybe you want to be healthier. Uh, maybe you have goals for your, your family and, and members, okay, partner, okay, your kids, uh, whoever is, is, is around you. Maybe you have some societal uh, uh, goals, how everything fits together. Okay, uh, how are you going to create the, the, the right balance? Are the ways in which you can make money, but also achieve these other goals? Okay, these are the the paths that, that you want to take. Okay, alternatively, there are possible ways where you can make money by undermining everything else. Okay, and this is probably not the best path uh, 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 for you. And then the the last packet of interventions uh, strategies that we can use uh, is social support, which is where we started this conversation. So, who is with you? Okay, who is helping? Okay, who's standing in the way? Did you tell you, your family that this is a, a goal for, for the next year? Are they on board? Okay, if you are going to uh, work more hours, uh, who's going to help you uh, uh, with that? Uh, if you are going to buy uh, less stuff, which is, by the way, great idea, regardless of whether you want to have more money, just, <laughs> right? Like everybody says, buy less stuff. Okay, and, and well, is my, my, the people that live with me that share the house on are they on board? Okay. How are they going to help? Can we uh, analyze together what is the stuff that we need to stop getting and, and working with, uh, with other people uh, is uh, really a recipe for success. Mm, beautiful. Well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? No, I think that what's hard for me here is that um, I kind of like mistakes. So I don't want to um, make some something perfect, something that uh, unmistakable, and I would go with that. Person uh, uh, that learns from mistakes. Beautiful. Uh, I really can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us uh, and share your wisdom and insights with listeners. I'm so glad that we are getting to kick off the new year with this message uh, to our listeners. I love that it's backed in real science and not just motivational mumbo jumbo. Uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, uh, the book, and everything else that you're up to? Uh, well, uh, get uh, get it done. Surprising lessons from the science of motivation, and hopefully that will help. And go on my website, agilitfishback dot com. Uh, I try to provide lots of information 
And there I'm also on social media and I would just uh, love to hear from your audience. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.